The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Father, we profess with our lips and we, we sing with our tongues that you are the one true living God. And, and I know that most here, we really believe that, and yet so oftentimes in our own lives, Lord, and certainly amongst those that we see in our mission field, we do, not, we do not live as though you are the only God. You have made yourself known through creation. You have made yourself known through the prophets, through your word, and most perfectly through your Son, Jesus Christ. You are the knowable God. And yet, even in Christ, Lord, we sit here this morning, and many of us are distracted. Many of our thoughts and our Emotions are drawn to those things that are not you and are not Christ. And these other gods that we've accumulated and that we've made temples of and that we bow down to. I ask, Lord, that you would simply this morning show yourself as you are. Show yourself as our creator. Show yourself as our creator who desires what is best for those made in your image. Show us, Father, that you are worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise by us now and forever. And show us, Lord, that you will send your Son, Jesus Christ, to one day judge the living and the dead as he establishes his kingdom on earth. Show us these things, Father. If they're unclear to us, make them clear. If they are clear to us, then open our mouths, Lord, that we might tell others as well. We, We were once lost, Father, and yet you found us. We want to be faithful messengers that you might find others. I ask, Lord, that you would bless this time with your spirit, that you would move amongst us in a mighty way and transform us as only you can. For your glory in Christ's name, amen. Amen. The title of the sermon is The Knowable God. And some of you might think that's strange. If If God's not knowable, then what would we be doing here this morning? Um, He is knowable. He wants to be known. He wants you to know Him more and more this hour, and He wants many of those in your mission field who are still lost to come to know Him as well. Um, Being lost is a horrible thing. Um, If you were like me as a young child, I had a tendency to veer off the narrow path of following my mother, and I, I found myself lost all the time. And it would be that moment when you realize I'm in trouble because I don't know where my mom is. Um, There was one time I remember in a fabric store, which we would go to, and I would climb underneath where, you know, fabric stores? Yeah, I loathe fabric stores. And I'd crawl underneath, and I would hide in between the, well, one time I came out, and I couldn't find her. I couldn't find my brothers, and I thought, I'm going to be stuck in this fabric store for the rest of my life. There was terror in my heart. Um, Lori and I, just the other day, we were at Pacific Grove, and this little girl came running up the path, and she stopped, and Lori and I had our eyes on her, and she's like, where am I? And we were both just getting ready to go to her, and then she saw her mom, and she ran to her mom, and there was that sense of relief. Um, Being lost is a horrible thing. Being spiritually lost, like many of those in your mission field are, is eternally catastrophic. The Apostle Paul finds himself, if you were here with us last, he's, he's in Athens. Um, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up, and he's been walking around, and he sees all these idols, all these temples, all these sanctuaries set up to all these false gods, and his heart aches. It says that his, 
his spirit is provoked in him. And he's aching because he's seeing lostness. He's seeing people like that little child thinking, I'm, I, I don't know where to go. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what my end is. And so we're told in verse 17 that he, he decides to reason with those in the synagogue, the Jews, and with the Gentiles in the marketplace. And what is he doing? He's saying, I can tell you, I can tell you how not to be lost. I can tell you how to know the knowable God. And so he reasons with them because his heart broke for them. But unlike many of our evangelistic techniques today, he didn't just blurt out, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, repent and believe. If you were here with us last week, he spent time doing some really good pre-evangelism, establishing some relationships, having some dialogues to lay a foundation to proclaim the gospel, which we're going to hear him do today. Today it's all gospel, but Paul's already laid a foundation the first thing he did, if you remember, he, he got a, a good bearing on their spiritual state. Look at verse 21, 23. He says to them, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So he knows where they are. He knows how lost they are. And the second thing he did is he affirmed some of the common grace that he saw in their lives. He said in verse 22, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You have a right fear for the divine. So he affirms that. And then the third thing he does is he finds an entry point for the gospel to come in. And he identifies, remember their unknown God and their unknown gods? He says in the latter part of verse 23, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And then he says this, and the entire sermon is based upon this. He said, what therefore you worship as unknown, Paul says, this I proclaim to you. And then he did. And he proclaimed the one true living God. So before he launches into a polytheistic culture that there's one God and one Savior, the risen Jesus Christ, he made sure he, they knew a few things about him that he really cared about them, that he really did love them, that he knew them well enough to speak into their lives. In fact, he even starts the sermon off by addressing their greatest idol. And he said, what was the greatest idol in Athens at that time? It was ignorance. Knowledge was the thing they pursued most, and so ignorance was the thing they were afraid of most. Right? So if, if ignorance was the consummate sin for the Athenian, and the greatest virtue was to discover truth through reason, then Paul says, and you're what? You're worshiping an unknown God. Well, you can't worship an unknown God without being ignorant of who that God is. And so Paul does something amazing here. He draws upon this foundation of the unknown God and their hatred for ignorance to proclaim Jesus Christ. He doesn't do it in a vacuum. He speaks contextually to his polytheistic audience. Same truth, but he knows them and he wants to speak clearly to them. Now the similarities, my beloved, between first century Athens and 21st century San Jose are remarkable. They're remarkable. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Listen very, very closely to what Paul does, how he preaches the gospel. You can take the exact sermon he preached and you can replicate it with your family and friends and co-workers who do not know Christ. And you know what? You're going to nail it because the Athenians are very much like us. They are a very lost people group. And so Paul, he does, he does four things. He makes it real simple for them. I want it to be super simple for us. I love it. I want this to be to be rightly burned upon your heart and mind. So when you open your mouth, you say these things too. Four essential truth claims. The Athenians need to hear and the lost in your life need to hear. Number one, that God is the creator. 
Now, none of these you're going to be shocked by. You're going to go, I never knew that. They're not going to be new, but they're imperative that we know. One, God is the creator. Number two, God cares about man. Number three, God is to be worshipped. And number four, God will judge. Okay? God is the creator. God cares about man. God is worthy of all worship. And God will judge. If you have those four pieces in your gospel presentation as you're reasoning with people, you're going to be standing on the shoulder, shoulders of giants. Because this has been the faithful proclamation of the church for 2,000 years. Right? We don't need to get creative and make a new message. The message is old. The message is good. The theme of the sermon is this. Christians everywhere are called to make the knowable God known. Every Christian everywhere is called and equipped to make the knowable God known. Are you able to do that this morning? If I were to stop right now and send you out and said, I want you to find one person in your life that does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, could you make God known? And if not, what do you need to do to equip yourself? By God's grace, we'll do that right now. Number one, ready? God is the creator. Now, the ancient Greeks, like every other culture throughout human history, has some idea, some concept or story or myth about how creation came to be. The Greeks were no exception to the rule. They believed that the world was in a state of, listen to this, nothingness. The parallels between the Bible are extraordinary, which they called chaos. Nothingness, which was chaos. And they believed that from this nothingness, listen to this, that suddenly from light, Gaia, Gaia, the mother earth, goddess, came to be. And at the same time that Gaia came to be, from her came Uranus, the god of the sky, and then some other primordial gods like Eros, the god of creation, Hermia, the goddess of the day, and then Pontus, the god of the sea. And so they believed that from from nothing, from chaos, from light, these primordial gods came to be. And then according to the Greek myths, the, the, god, the goddess Gaia and Uranus, they got together and they had 12 children. You know your Greek mythology, don't you? No, no I don't know it at all. That's okay. <laughs> Read your Bible. <clears throat> they had the 12 titans. Now you know that term, right? They had the 12 titans. And the, t- the Titans were the second generation of immortals. Now, I know there's a movie out. I haven't seen it, but it's definitely tied into this. I don't recommend you watch it. I've heard terrible things about it. From the Titans, Cronus and Rhea, well, they got together, and they had 12 more children, and those children were the, the Olympians. Not the Olympians that you're seeing today, but same tied into these were the 12 gods of Mount Olympus. These are the 12 gods the Athenians in Paul's day worshipped. Gods we've talked about, Zeus, Ares, Poseidon, Apollo, and all the others that made up the the Greek pantheon. In other words, their entire worldview and how all of creation came to be was based upon a polytheistic worldview. Many, many, many gods. And man's place in that was not only insignificant, it was not favorable. Most of the Greek theologies saw man as a servant of God to ensure that God stayed healthy and happy. Yeah. So the idea of a single, listen, Paul's going to talk about a single supreme creator of all that is seen and unseen, and that this single creator created all that that exists. This would be completely foreign to them in terms of their practice of religion. But this God 
is the God that Paul is going to proclaim. The, the God of the Bible was truly an unknown God to them. Look at verse 24. Paul says, this God, this God is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He could not use more dogmatic language in the Greek than this is one God. He made everything, right? If you say you make everything, then it includes everything. Every star, every atom, every molecule God made. And by the way, he's also ruler over it. So he made it and it's all his. He's the ruler, he's the king, he's the sovereign over the heavens and the earth. We say, well, we sing this all the time and we believe this. Well, you believe it because it's true and God made that known to you. They did not believe this at that time. But Paul is saying, listen, there, there are no other gods, okay? If there are no other gods and there are no other gods to compete as creators, and if there are no other gods, there are no other gods to, to compete as rulers. There is one true living God. And then he drew from this. He's saying, listen, if this is true, there were two immediate implications for the Athenians that, of course, apply to us as well. Number one, their man-made temples to all their man-made gods were what? Oh, they were worthless. Right? If you have a temple to a god that does not exist, that's worthless. And number two, their man-made sacrifices to their man-made gods and their man-made temples, they were equally worthless. Look at verse 24 again. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now that's a very simple thought, my beloved. If God is the creator of all that is seen and unseen, right, and the idea then that God can make a little house for God, a little temple for God, I mean, you have, you have to laugh. You should laugh. It's ridiculous. It's all his, but we're going to make a little shack for God to live in. Even Solomon, now this is amazing, even Solomon, who was commanded by God to make a temple for the people of Israel, thought, well, this cannot contain you. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. This is what Solomon said after being commanded by God to make the temple. He said, will God dwell? Will God indeed dwell on the earth? And then he said this, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, the house of God, Solomon is saying, cannot hold God. Well, how can, how can a universe hold a God that created the universe? It doesn't make any sense, right? And yet, now listen, the Athenians, these were people who prided themselves on reason and truth and knowledge. And Paul is saying here, you, you pride yourself on being knowledgeable and reasonable, and yet you are the city filled with what? With temples. With all the worthless shacks that you place these gods that do not exist in. And they were fitting for the false gods because these false gods are not real, but they were worthless in magnifying the one true living God. And so Paul, he, he lovingly goes after their temples. And so you need to know the audience is starting to get some sore spots. They're feeling some wounds on their heart, which is what Paul wants. Look at verse 25. He said, nor is he the true God he just identified in verse 24. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, Paul, again, he's, he used the term everything because he wants us to get it. This is all-encompassing. All right? He created everything. He owns everything. He's ruler of everything. And what? He needs nothing. He needs nothing, certainly, from us. Centuries before Paul would preach to the Athenians, God revealed this through the prophet Isaiah. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. 
quote, I am the Lord. God says, let me make it really plain for us. God says, I am the Lord. I created all that is seen and unseen. I don't need, God doesn't need anything from his creation. He certainly doesn't need anything from sinful human beings like us. Tozer said it like this. He said, all life is in and from God. All of life, whether it be the lowest form of unconscious life or the highly self-conscious intelligent life of a seraph, an angel. He said, no creature has life in itself. All life is, listen with all your might, a gift from God. All life All life is a gift from God. In other words, the the doctrine of God's self-sufficiency, God needs nothing. He has been self-sufficient from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is life. He needs nothing. And he certainly doesn't need sacrifices from us, right? Those things that we do that we think, well, God needs me to do this for him. I love, if you remember, a thousand years before Paul, God made sure David would understand the worship that would proceed in the temple that Solomon would build. God said to David, listen, hear, and I will speak. God said, I love this. I am God. That's sufficient. Hear, David, I will speak. I am God. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on the thousand hills are mine. I know all the birds of the hills. I know all, I know all that moves in the field. It's mine. If I were hungry, God said, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. We get the point. It's utterly foolish to think that we can sacrifice something to God because God needs it. So what Paul does here, in one fell swoop, but what a preacher Paul was, in one fell swoop, he decimates their temples and he decimates their sacrificial system. He undoes their entire religious worldview in this single statement. Centuries and centuries of philosophies and myths and religion and worship. Paul's saying, you're ignorant. There's one God. He doesn't live in these foolish little temples, and he doesn't need the sacrifices that you're offering up. My beloved, I would argue that today, right here in San Jose in the 21st century, those in our mission field desperately need to hear this. That there is one true living God. He is self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and he doesn't need us at all. He wants us, which is glorious, but he doesn't need us. And as soon as you can get someone to begin to hear that, well, then we, we understand immediately it nullifies all our false worship. Right? If there's one true God, it means there are no other gods. And if this one true God is self-sufficient and desires to, to know us and love us, then why would you turn to something that doesn't exist, something that is truly worthless? It nullifies all other gods, whether it's Zeus and Apollo or Allah or Brahman today or the, the, the gods of our culture. They have different names like money and sex and pleasure and power and fame. You name it. If the God of the Bible is real... Then all are the gods, and any homage paid to them is fake. It's meaningless, truly worthless. So, for example, as a Christian missionary in the West today, certainly in these last couple years, um, you want to show those who have put their faith, say, in something like modern science and modern medicine, you want to say, listen, if you are submitting unconditionally to the priests in white coats, and those temples that we call hospitals, you need to step back and realize that it is God who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Hmm? Good message for us today. 
You want to show those in your mission field who are worshiping in the altar of sexual freedom, those who are feasting at the temple of financial prosperity, these places where happiness is sought, that God is the one true living God, and only in Him can we truly be satisfied. That we'll never, we'll never, that interior struggle, that desire to be whole or complete, you'll never have it if you're not in Christ. We want to make people see that, that God has created us to live in a particular way and to love in a particular way and to be satisfied only by Him ultimately. We need to help people see that those who are working their way to Him, I mean really trying hard to be good, offering sacrifices of morality and good deeds at the altars of philanthropies and charities and even ministry, be careful Christian, even ministries in the church, that God is all-sufficient, all-knowing, infinitely holy, and needs nothing from you. And there's no way you can earn your way into his, his good standing. Can't do it. So first, I pray that we see the importance of re- revealing the God of the Bible as the creator and sustainer of all that is. John, earlier during our prayer time, said, you know, you really kind of got to start here. And it's a good point. You got to start here, right, with this God and who he is. But the second thing, that Paul realized he wanted to communicate to the Athenians that I want us to communicate to those in our mission field is that God cares about man. And that's an important point. I mean, it's one thing to talk about God as a creator, but is he a good creator? Is he a loving creator? So based upon the human experience of many people in our cultural moment, they say no. When they look upon the world and they see They see a pandemic that takes lives. They see people being fractured economically. They see divorce. They see all kinds of the the horrible things that take place in a fallen world. They say, if this God is real, then he cannot be good. If this God is real and all-powerful, then he cannot be good. Well, you know, those in Athens, they suffered too. And they often believed that the gods were both cruel and capricious that they were responsible for all the mess of this fallen world. For instance, Ares, the god of war, was supposedly able to fill men with rage, so much so that they would kill each other on the scale of massive wars. Eros, the god of sexual desire and procreation, was supposedly able to fill a man or woman's heart with lust, that they would compel them to engage in all forms of sexual immorality. Even the creation of mankind according to their worldview, was surrounded by scandal and war and the fallout of war. For those of you who remember your Greek mythology, Prometheus and Epimetheus, those are the two titans, remember the two titans who said they weren't going to go to war with the Olympians? Remember, the, remember that war, the, what was it, the Titanomachy? The Titanomachy? It's something like you'd see on World Wrestling Federation or something. The Titanomachy. They decided they were not going to war against the Olympians. The Olympians won. And so they were given the task. They weren't put into prison like the other ten titans were. Prometheus and Epimetheus were given the menial task, listen, the very low task of creating mankind. That was was their punishment. Prometheus supposedly shaped man out of the mud, and then the Olympian goddess Athena breathed life into man. He said, well, where does Epithemius come into this play? Well, Epithemius was given the job by the Olympians to give to man a trait, a good trait. Actually, he was given the responsibility of giving a trait, a positive trait, to all living creatures. And according to the story is, he gave all the traits to all the creatures, and then he got to man, and he had none left. Looked in the bag, 
and it was empty. And it was one of their reasons for explaining why mankind is so morally decrepit. How different, my beloved, from Genesis chapter 1. What a, what a different story, right? In Genesis chapter 1, we're told that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. I mean, we're at the top of the top. How different from Paul's declaration that here from Adam, that God not only created every man and provides for every man, but he created man in his image so that we might what? We might seek him out and find him and know him. Look at verse 26. And he, now speaking of the creator and Lord, he established in verses 24 and 25, he made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What? The audience must have been, I mean, this is so revolutionary for them to hear. That not only is there one God who created all that is seen and unseen, and this God is good, but this God desires to know his creatures and desires to know mankind personally and intimately. That God created, that God cares, and that God desires to know us. Not just know about us, but really, really know us. According to Paul, the sovereign God, not some demagogue, not some second or third generation immortal, The one true living God created all man through Adam. And that means, my beloved, that you have a direct tie to your creator. Do you know that? You have a universal tie to your creator. I I know that over the years some of you have gone on to Ancestry.com and you found some amazing things about your your roots, your people, some good things, some not so good things. Um, Paul says, I'll, I'll do one better and it's for free. You don't have to pay for it. Paul says, you come directly through Adam, who was made by God. So if you're looking for your past relatives to find something good to prop yourself up, Paul says, listen, go directly through Adam to God. Your origin is the creator himself. And what a a glorious thought that God himself made us through Adam. So we're not the product, oh, praise God, we're not the product of warring gods. We're not the product of warring gods. My beloved, listen, you're not the product of evolutionary biology or chance mutation. You're not. Paul reveals that man is the purposed creation of God the creator in his image so that we might what? We might be over the face of the earth. Or as we know from Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, God said what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living creature. In other words, God made us to cover the earth, to serve him, and to bring him glory and honor. To be the pinnacle of his creation so that when people see mankind, they say, I see God. God made man to fill this earth, not haphazardly, as the Greek gods believed, but purposefully and providentially. Look at the latter part of verse 26. Great details here that Paul is making to his Athenian audience. He's saying that God having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, speaking of the nations. Now this is an amazing statement and I want you to think about it for just a minute. Every nation under heaven, according to the Apostle Paul in verse 26, is known by God, purposed by God, planted by God, and sustained by God. Every nation from the beginning to the end Every people group. It's an extraordinary thought. You see, the Athenians were a very, very proud people group. 
I mean, they, it's Greece, and this is Athens, and this is where the smartest people in the world are. In fact, they actually made a distinction between indigenous Athenians and those who would visit. They said, no, no, you're not, you're not really one of us. And so Paul is trying to bring to bear upon them that every nation occupies a place in God's redemptive plan. And that means, my beloved, because nations are made up of people, every man, woman, and child in every nation, listen, is important to God. Every man, woman, and child in every nation for all of human history is important to God. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, minimally we know that it's evidenced in His common grace upon mankind. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord is good to who? To all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. And then even Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 that God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we know that God cares about every nation and God cares about every person so much so that we know that Christ came and died for the sins of this world that this world might be redeemed through him. So far from precarious beginnings like the Greeks believed, God made man in his image purpose to bless him, to be known by him, so that what? Look at verse 27. So that they, speaking of the nations, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, here Paul, Paul presupposes their fallen state, right? I mean, they're worshiping idols and idols to unknown gods. They don't know the real God. And so Paul is saying here, it's not God's will to, be, to remain unknown, it's God's, not only is it God's will to be made known, but he wants to be known intimately and personally, that we would seek him and that we would find him. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to find him. We know that through natural revelation, that God wants us to know him, and we know that we have access to him through the cross of Christ. Paul said very clearly in Romans chapter 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Plain to who? everyone. It's plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. While his invisible attributes, namely, listen, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That's the beginning. In the things that have been made, so man is what? Without excuse. Excuse of what? Knowing God. God's made himself known through natural revelation. He's made himself accessible through his son, Jesus Christ. God's purposes are clear. He created all people everywhere, in every nation, in every time to seek him and to find him. What a glorious purpose. How much better than being the, the, the progeny of warring gods and you were, you were part of a bad deal that was cut because Prometheus and Epimetheus did not battle. How amazing that he created you to know him. And what's so fantastic is that means that God has a universal expectation of every one of his image bearers to seek him out, right? There's an expectation for all of those in your mission field to know God. He, God expects that, and I would argue we should desire that for them, should we not? We should want them to seek out God. So much better, this, this truth, which is truth, is so much better than the lie that you are here by chance and you die by chance and you have no purpose in life. That's, that's just a, that's a lie. And what a horrible worldview. 
This, this teaching that God created us personally and intimately to have a relationship, so much better than the worldview embraced by so many in our cultural moment, this vague spiritualism about this divine being and participating with this divine being even though he has no name, thinking that somehow it, when you die you're going to be caught up in this, this uh, divine essence and your personality is going to be swallowed up into this indescribable, non-personal God, um, that's, it's a lie, and it's tragic. It's tragic. We, we want to show everyone that God is the creator, that God is good, that God is compassionate, and God desires to know them intimately and personally as a person, as an individual person, a man and a woman created in his image. My beloved, if, if we don't show people that, if we don't show that God is the creator of all that is unseen seen and unseen and is good, well, then you're, they're going to have a tough time turning away from their idols. Any expectation you have of someone trying to make it through life, suffer through fallen condition, submitting to the idols you know have no power, these foolish temples and these foolish sacrifices that cannot solve anything for them, they're not going to turn unless they see this God clearly. And so we must tell them, we must tell them. If we don't, who will? So we've seen we must communicate, one, that God is the creator. Number two, that he cares about man. Can I give you a third? That he is to be worshipped. That he is to be worshipped. So God uses biblical theology. He uses the Greek poets to explain why God alone is worthy of all worship and honor and glory. Now, you could say, if he's creator, then he must be. And that's true. It's true. So Paul said, listen, he's creator, therefore he's worthy of honor. Right? We want to honor the one who made us. He, he purposed to care for us, and he does care for us, and therefore he is worthy of honor. Paul says he desires to be known by you, so seek him out. That's, that's a God worthy of honor. And then he says this, he's worthy of honor because he can be found. That, that's such an amazing thing today. Imagine talking to someone in your mission field, maybe, maybe a friend or maybe a family member who does not know God, and you say, but he can be found. He's knowable. He's not this vague, abstract, transcendent thought. He's real. And we know that Paul says he can be found because, one, he's not far from us, and two, we're his offspring. Look at the latter part of verse 27. Paul says, yet he, speaking of God, is actually not far from each of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul's not flopping back into some stoic pantheism that God's in everything, all things, all plants, all people, all rocks, all trees, the chair you're sitting on. He's not arguing that. What he is saying this, that this God is near to those he created in his image. He's near to us. In fact, he's saying that as the pinnacle of God's creation, we being his image bearers, his offspring, Paul says that we live and we move move and we be our beings are because God is and God made us and God is near us. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Not Prometheus, not Athena, but God made you to know him, our living and moving and being 
this very morning, the very fact that you woke up this morning and you got into a car and you got here and you worked, the very fact that you are here doing this, listening and thinking and you were singing, and we're going to sing again, testifies to the fact that God made you. It's extraordinary. You're a walking sermon. But Paul also says this, he is worthy of worship by mankind. We, I would argue, I would argue God is worthy of worship by mankind than any, more than any other creature. What you, so why would you say that? Because only man, not the angels, not the stars, not the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, only man was made in his image. Look at verse 28. He even, he said, I'm going to quote your own prophets. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, his children, children of God. The poet, poets, they got Genesis 1 right. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, God's offspring. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Say it with me. Male and female, he created him. Mm. And so as God's offspring, my beloved, I would argue that of all the creatures, all the billions and billions of creatures and created pieces of God's glorious universe that worship him this very morning, mankind, you, were made to worship him most. To worship him most. And yet, unlike all of creation, besides the fallen angels, only mankind has a problem with this. You know that, right? For those of you who have dogs, your dog has no problem worshiping God. They don't. For those of you who have other animals in the house or plants in the house, any living thing, even the rocks, if we were to be silent, John the Baptist said, these rocks will cry out to the glory of God. All of creation gets it, except mankind, and yet mankind was made in the image of God as God's offspring to worship him best. There's, there's a tension point here, and he's, he's pressing on the Athenians he wants them to see this. So with this great clarity, what does he do? He calls them out on their idolatry. Not because he, he hates them, he loves them. He wants them worshiping God and not these idols who have no existence. He's, he's made his case. He said, God is the creator. God is good. God has purposed you to know him. He's near to you that you can know him. He wants you to know him. You're the pinnacle of creation. You're his own offspring made to be known and loved by him forever. So Paul's laid this great foundation. And then we get to verse 29. Being then God's offspring, Paul says, we ought not to think that the divine being, this God, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And so what he established in verses 24 and 25, he now solidifies and says all your false worship, all your temples and all your sacrifices, they are hideous to God. They are hideous to God. Being God's offspring, we ought to worship God alone, not the idols that we make on our own. Paul now remember Paul had gone through the city and he had seen they were artists and he probably saw in Athens some of the most brilliant, beautiful 
temples and sanctuaries to all these gods. Gold, silver, architecture, fantastic. Some of the most impressive temples and idols to false gods in the entire Roman Empire that Paul saw here. But as you know, the greatest temples and altars in Athens made by man can never rightly represent worship to the divine being of God. Right? You can't, man can't make something and then ascribe worth and value to it as though that thing is God. You should think to yourself, well, that's crazy. Paul's thinking is simple. Listen, if mankind, oh, listen, please. If mankind and only mankind bears the true image of God, if we are his offspring made by his hands, then it makes sense that no image, no idol, no temple we make can render proper worship to God. Does that make sense? Only you, only mankind can render proper worship to God. Not something we make. God makes us with his hands that we might worship him. He doesn't say, I made you, now you make something and worship that thing as though it were me. That's crazy, and, and that is crazy. From the very beginning, God made man in his image to reflect his glory. Right? What is your purpose? Why are you here? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why you're here. From the very beginning. Under the new covenant, we're told that the Holy Spirit, through Christ, comes and dwells in us so that we become what? We literally become living temples, living, moving, breathing temples that cover the face of the earth, that magnify the glory of God. Not these stupid, perverted images that we make. And they're stupid. They are ignorant. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Do you not know that you are, God, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You're that temple. My beloved, if I, if I told you that, that one of my sons, when the, this, this is hypothetical, and I'm not going to give a name, it's hypothetical, it really is. If I said that one of my sons, at some point in time, denied that Lori and I raised him. And then they went so far, they were going to say, you know what, I'm going to deny them as my parents. They're not my parents. I don't belong to them. I didn't come from them. And then if they were to, you know, we raised our boys up in the mountains, so they were around trees all the time. And they came to the conclusion that they came from the spirit of the trees and that the trees really are their parents and they gave their life to guarding the trees and watching the trees and caring for the trees and building temples to the trees. Well, if you heard that story, you would say to them, what? You're crazy. Your parents raised you. They're your parents. What are you doing with these trees? My beloved, if that's crazy, man from man, how much more so image bears offsprings to God? Crazy to say that God did not make us Crazy that say that God did not raise us and train us. The evolutionists argue this. The environmentalists argue this. The environmentalists argue for Gaia. Do they not? Mother Earth. How many times have you heard that? Mother who? I know no Mother Earth. I know Father God. So do you and so must those in our mission field. Now at this point, anyone still listening to Paul, they're, they're moving in one of two directions. They're either going to say, oh, he is a babbler from the east, right? He's a seed speaker. This man has lost it. Or their hearts are being rightly pricked by the Holy Spirit. And some are saying, oh, we want to hear more of this. Some, as we know at the end of the passage, actually come 
to a saving grace. My beloved, we want, I want for you and I pray you want for all those in your mission field to know these simple truths. To know these truths that, about who God is and how he really cares for man and how he wants to be sought out and how he can be found. Because when someone begins to hear that and understand that, then the idols in their life fall away. Right? The idols that you have in your life, you're battling, you're working hard against, you hate them. But you know they're not God. Not so those who do not know Christ. Everybody worships someone or something. Everyone has an idol. Everyone has a temple. Everyone has a sanctuary. And everybody's sacrificing to someone or something. We want everyone to see that. We want them to see that to worship an idol is not only ignorant as the Athenians got, but it's evil. It's evil. Your desire to be liked and approved, an inordinate desire to be liked and approved by family and friends, that's not just foolish, that's evil. It's evil. Your desperate need for that perfect marriage or that healthy body or that online identity, it's evil. If it's inordinate, it's evil because that's putting something above God. Whatever captivates your hearts or your imagination more than the divine being, the one true living God, the creator, whatever it is, it's evil. We want people in our mission field, as Paul did in Athens, to see this, to see their idols as meaningless, powerless, worthless, evil idols that have no power to save and no power to satisfy. You can communicate that, can't you? And you pressed into that idol. Maybe you built an altar in your heart for that. And you sacrificed day and night. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was your kids. And you kept coming up short. It didn't fill. It didn't work. Everybody knows that. Anybody who's lived any length of time, they know it. They know it. So we want to tell them. We want to show them. We want them to see God as the psalmist sees God. Great is the Lord, Psalm 96. And greatly what? To be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of all the peoples are what? Worthless, worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. That's where we are in Christ. That's where we want people to come in Christ. Into the house of God. Can I get one amen for that? All right, thank you. All right, we got to communicate God is the creator. We got to communicate God cares about man. We got to communicate that God alone is to be worshiped. And then one more, and I'll close. And you can't skip this one. This is the hardest one. We can talk about everything up to this point in time. But if we don't talk about this last point, then we're not going to be truthful. Number four, God will judge. God will judge. Paul's speaking to. Remember, he's speaking to a polytheistic people. They believed in lots of lots of gods. And so what he's saying is, you can't take this God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, you can't take this Savior, Jesus Christ, and add him up on top of your Acropolis. He can't be one of your many gods. He is the one true living God. He is a jealous God. And he will what? You heard Kirk read it. He will give his glory to no one. In other words, Paul is saying, you can't take this God and add him on. He's got to be your all, or he is nothing to you. And so Paul does what? He, he calls into repentance. He says, you, got, you abandon the idols and turn to God. Look at verse 30. 
You see, the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, this is fascinating. Paul goes back to the beginning of his sermon. Remember, he started with their ignorance. They were worshiping what? An unknown God. And now Paul goes back to the problem of ignorance, and he does it to address two things. One, their guilt and God's patience. Did you notice that? Look at verse 30 again. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked. God has been infinitely merciful and gracious. But, Paul says, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He says, you're, you're very religious people. He pointed that out. You have a, an interest in the divine. But you're worshiping and praying and offering sacrifices to gods that do not exist. While simultaneously ignoring the God that does. But rather than being judged rightly by the creator, what does God do? He's patient. He was patient with them. Patient, merciful, overlooking the most grievous sin of all is idolatry. You do know that, right? The most grievous sin of all is to call something God that is not God and then worship that thing as though it were. And yet God did not destroy them. But, Paul says, now that you've heard the truth, God will no longer be patient. Now that you know that all your gods are false gods and there is one true living God, the unknown God to you has now been made known, Paul is saying, listen, now you are responsible. And so what does he call them to? He says, you've heard the gospel and therefore God commands you to repent. He says, well, I know what that means. That means to turn away from the idols, turn away from the sin, and turn to God and put my hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And you say amen to that. But did you notice it was God who commands them? I think this is the most glorious command in all of sacred scripture. I really do. God commands them what? To be saved. God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe and be saved. Why? Because God desires none to perish. This is God's desire. This reveals God's heart that mankind seek him, find him, and be saved in him in Christ. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Look at verse 31. Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. All the evil God will judge by a man, that's Christ, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What Assurance to what? This day is real. The judge is real. How do we know that? Because Christ rose from the dead. God testifies to this warning. There will be a judge. It will be Christ, and he will come and judge in righteousness. King Jesus, the crucified, risen son, appointed by God before the foundations of the world to come on a day. When is that day? Don't answer that. You don't know that day. It is coming, and we would say it is coming soon. But it is a day that will not not come. It is fixed by God and will come and it will be Christ to judge all sin, all unrighteousness, all idolatry, all the hatred, all the murder we see, all the sexual immorality and abuse, all the pride, my beloved, all the self-glorification, all the injustices against the weak and the poor, the effects of every sin from Genesis 3 until that day that he comes, he will make right. And we, we want that, right? We see the brokenness, and we don't say more brokenness. We say, no, make it whole. 
we see all the hatred and all the anger. And we don't say, we want more of that. We want righteousness. We want justice. Remember what God said to the prophet Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When Christ comes, that's what will happen. And God commands the Athenians to repent and be saved because they're part of the problem. Right? The Athenians, as wise as they were, were part of the problem. All mankind in our sins were part of the problem. And so God calls all people everywhere to repent and be saved because that day is coming guaranteed. Guaranteed. All mankind, my beloved, will come before this judge who was appointed by God as a friend or as a foe. One of those two categories. For the Athenians, if they refuse to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they refuse to repent and believe, if they were going to ignore this free grace offered by God through a crucified risen Savior and turn back to their temples and back to their altars, if they said, we're not going to hear this truth, we're going to remain ignorant now that we've heard, and they had heard, then when they come before this appointed man, they will know him only, listen, as a judge. Only as a judge on that day, not a friend. And that judge will lay their life before them. Every sin, every word, every thought, every action laid before them. And there will be silence in that courtroom. No, sin, no sinner, male or female, will stand before the judge trying to make an excuse for their life apart from Christ. Won't do it. What a striking thing for the Athenians to hear who valued divine reverence and fear so much. What a striking statement that this God described by Paul was going to judge those who reject the gospel. Paul said you can come as a a foe or as a friend. Those who would hear that God is their creator and that God is good and that God purposed mankind to know him and desires to be known by him. They will come before this appointed man on that day just as well, but not as a judge, as a what? As a savior. Same man, Jesus Christ, the risen king, but not as judge, but as savior. A savior who, as you know, gave his life so that sinners like us, through repentance and faith, could be saved from the judgment that is to come. Saved from the consequences of your sins. Saved and and indwelt by the Holy Spirit to be what? Living, moving, breathing temples on earth. Right? What a great purpose. Covering the earth as God's offspring. Doing what? Reflecting His glory in our love for Him and in our love for one another. Paul does not have a chance to elaborate on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have no doubt he had continued this sermon. This would not have been a 45-minute sermon. Verse 32, look with me. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, they ridiculed, they jeered him, they laughed at him, right? The resurrection of the dead, as we know, was not part of their salvation plan. Verse 32 continues, but others, Luke tells us, others said, we will hear you again about this. They wanted wanted to hear more. It says that Paul went out of their midst. And then in verse 34, this is some there, right? But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Arabogite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. They said, you know what? We're not going to remain ignorant. We're not going to stay in darkness. 
we've heard the truth, the Holy Spirit made them alive, and they came to a saving grace, and they what? They believed. They believed. My beloved, there are so many in San Jose who serve idols just like they did in Athens. So many who have never heard of this God that you know so well that Paul described 2,000 years ago. They need to hear it too. They need to hear that God is their creator. Simple truth. They need to hear that. They need to hear that this creator actually cares about them personally. He really does care about them. He cares about their struggles. He, he cares about their, their disobedience and their idolatry, so much so that he sent Christ to die for them. They need to hear that. They need to know that. They need to know that God desires a relationship with them. We need to tell them and make it clear that this God, because of who he is and what he's done through Christ, is alone worthy of all worship and honor and glory and praise. He alone. They must hear that. And they must hear that last part, which is the hardest part for us to say. Because we know as soon as we say it, that what, one of two things are going to happen. They're going to think, you're a religious zealot, and I don't, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. They're going to say, you're judging them. We judge no one. God is the judge. The appointed judge is Christ. We must rightly call them to repentance and faith. We must tell them they can't continue in their idolatry and they can't take God in and make him part of their personal pantheon. That it's God alone or nothing. The day of the Lord, my beloved, is fastly approaching. Each day we draw closer to us and we must not I want to encourage you, do not shy away from speaking the truth in love about this day. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what anyone in your mission field believes. This day is coming. Christ is coming. He will judge. That's fixed. We got to tell them. If we love the lost, if we love those who are lost in our mission field, and they're walking around, many of them, spiritually, like that little girl that Lori and I saw the other day, and they are dazed and confused and terrified, and they have no idea. Many of them don't even know they're lost. If we love them, like Paul loved the Athenians, we will tell them these truths. We'll tell them that God is patient, and that he does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Although Paul used their language, he quoted their poets, he sought to reach them in terms they could understand. He never compromised on the gospel, but he built these bridges. We're called to that same work. We're called to that same work. Get to know those in your mission field. Get to know the idols they are worshiping. Help them see those idols can provide no salvation and no satisfaction, and then show them God. Oh, my beloved, if they can get a glimpse. It just took a glimpse for you, did it not? It was just a glimpse of God that can capture the heart. So, as we're going through who's your one, I want you to think about who's your one, then your one, and your one. I want you to think about those people that you can do this with and testify with that they might see Christ and be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the only reason that we know these things is because you were gracious and by your Spirit you made them known to us. We know you. We are known by you. We love you because you first loved us. 
Father, I ask that you would bless our lips that we might tell people about Christ. Help us, Lord, to show those in our mission field that the idols they worship, the temples they build, the sacrifices they make are truly and utterly worthless. And then equip us with kind and compassionate hearts to point them to the cross of Christ where they can gaze upon a crucified Savior and know that He gave His life that we might live. Lord, help us to show people You. Because if they see You, if they get a glimpse of You, then salvation and satisfaction are guaranteed. I ask, Lord, that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, move in us to see many saved. Help us to show those in our mission field who bow down to these unknown gods, You, the noble God, that they might know you as we do. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you would like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.